Well, as we make our way back to our seats, I want to open up in a word of prayer as I prepare to open God's word before us this morning. So let's pray together, family. God, thank you for all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, for giving us voices to sing with, for the ability to understand, God, the riches of your grace to reflect and meditate upon who you are, oh God. And God, we all come today with all sorts of things on our minds, Lord. For some, even the songs that we sing are hard because we're so consumed with other thoughts and burdens. So Lord, we continue to pray that you continue to work in us. You'd soften the hard hearts that are here, the calluses that have grown over time, maybe resentment, uh, fear, and just all the different things, God, that prevent us from seeing you for who you are. And so, my Father, I pray that you might meet us now. God, we pray for our our great city that we love and for the advancement of the gospel in every community. We pray for the churches that are around us right now meeting, like New Life, Montclair, churches like uh, Bethany Baptist Church and Belmont Assembly of God. Victory Worship Center. And God, think of churches like City Lights who met last night. And God, all these other churches that are striving to make much of you. God, bless them abundantly. And may we, as the body of Christ, continue to put you in the spotlight, God. Oh, God, do a sweet work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever traveled out of Chicago, you'll have noticed when you go to different places in our country things that typically aren't prominent here in our city. I remember one of the first times we did a family road trip to Florida. And it was about the time we hit southern Georgia or northern Florida, we began to see palm trees. And I remember stopping at a gas station and wanting to take pictures at a gas station. And uh, recently on a trip to Florida, somebody acknowledged and said, you know, isn't it funny how once you're here for a while, you start seeing the palm trees over and over and you don't even notice that they're there anymore. You kind of become bored with it. Uh, I remember as a youth, I had an opportunity to go to Colorado with uh, an organization here in the city. And we drove to Colorado. And I remember the first time we approached the mountains, all of us Chicagoans plastered to the windows, staring out to this, this mountainscape and in awe of the mountains. And after we spent a few days in Colorado, it's kind of like, oh, look at mountain, right? See, what was... Once fascinating became too familiar and it lost its beauty. Happens in marriage sometimes. You enter all excited. And what is initially fascinating becomes all too familiar and you lose your excitement. And you could think of a bunch of things. A a starlit sky. The ocean sunrise. 
You go on and on. You think of various things that were once beautiful. They just become boring because you get used to it. You see, what, is, what becomes overly familiar can stifle fascination. Familiarity can lead to forgetfulness. And what is true in nature is certainly true of God. Sometimes we can hear much about God or talk about him or come to a Sunday morning gathering. We sing to him, and this familiarity leads to, to just boredom. You, you're no longer appreciative. I've been there all too often. And yet, if we remember times when we were fascinated with God, just think of those moments. If you've ever experienced a true fascination for God and his grace and his glory, and at that moment, the one thing that concerns you most is saying, God, how long will this last? It is so sweet and so good. And sometimes we go so long from experiencing that. The fascination becomes too familiar. Today, we're going to look at what it means to recover the wonder of God's glory and awe. And for some today, say, I've never seen God like that. Maybe the picture of God you have is a, as of a dictator. Maybe God is someone who is heavy-handed, unloving, who's not good. And so you think of God, you don't think of anything that involves beauty or pleasure or delight. And yet we see in every page of the Bible that that is our God. He is a God who has invited us into a relationship with him. And we want to recover the wonder of that invitation. Recover the wonder of who he is. We are now four weeks into our series that is called 100. And as Erica mentioned, we're approaching our 100th worship service, and we want to give 100% to God. We want to give all that we are in living for him, not because in doing so that we'll become accepted by God. We're accepted not on our terms, but on God's terms and by his grace. But in light of what he's offered to us, God, we, we say to God, God, we want to give you all that we are. And so you looked at Paul, who suffered all kinds of injustices, shipwrecked, beaten. And he says, everything that I have gained in life, I count as nothing for the sake of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That is the 100 battle cry, church. What is the 100 battle cry? That Jesus is worth it. it. What is the 100 battle cry? He is worth it. And we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three men who in the face of death said, we will not bow our knee to any other idol. And an idol is whatever has prime affection in your life. It doesn't have to be a stone image, golden image. It could be your job, your children, the idea of marriage. It could be anything. It could be money, possessions. And they said, we will not bow our knee to anything but our God, 100. Or lastly, we looked at Joseph, a man who was blessed by God. He was a man who was faithful to God, and he found himself in Egypt. And his master, Potiphar, had a wife, undoubtedly attractive, certainly aggressive, and she tells him to lie with her, and he runs away because he says it is of greater value to obey my God than to fall prey to my sexual desires. 100. We're looking at the lives of people who say, God, you are worth it. And today, we look at somebody who delighted in the wonder of God 
I just was in awe of him. He just didn't get bored of his God. And my prayer is that as we look at Moses, that God would help us recover the wonder and renew the pursuit of God. We find ourselves in a book of Exodus chapter 33. And if there, you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to have it. It's on page 48. I looked up the page number today. Can I get a hand clap? Yeah? Right? I always forget that if you're new here. I always forget. It's on page 48. I want to give us some context to this man named Moses. And I'm confident that as we see his love for his God, he was not perfect. The Bible is written with sinner saints. And you're part of that storyline if you trusted in Jesus. But there is a man who had a remarkable understanding of the presence of God. Moses is, uh, from a child, was someone who saw God's favor. He should have died as a baby, but his mom put him in a basket and on the Nile River and sent him off. And in God's providence, he protected him. Moses was a man who grew up in Egypt and one day saw the Egyptians persecuting his own people, the Jewish people, and he begins to fight with this Egyptian and he kills him. Moses killed a man, buries his body in the sand, and then realizes there's people who wanted him dead because of it. Moses was a man who suffered all kinds of things because of choices he made, but sometimes just because of where God had him at. And I think about Moses, I think of some of you who are here today, and you've said to me before, I should be dead by now. And you share with me your story. He said, man, the people I used to hang with, they're not around. Or if I didn't have Jesus in my life, I'd be, and I've heard that from you guys. And Moses undoubtedly is one saying, I'm lost without God. Yet God had a purpose for Moses as he has a purpose for you. And we see in Moses' life, That one day he saw this burning bush, but the bush was not being consumed. And he was intrigued by it and and walked toward the bush. And a voice came out and said, Moses, take off your sandals because the place that you stand is holy ground. God met Moses in a burning bush. God told Moses to go back to Egypt and that he would use Moses to, to free his people from Pharaoh. And Moses followed reluctantly, but he followed nonetheless. And God brought 10 plagues on Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh's like, get these people out of there. If I can hold on to them any longer, this whole nation will be destroyed. And so God leads his people out through Moses, out of Egypt, into the wilderness. And then there's a sea in front of them. And Egypt's like, what do we do? These are our slaves. Why do we let them go? Let's go and capture them again. God parts the Red Sea. Moses leads them through. And the sea closes. God protects them. This this is Moses we're speaking of here. A man that God used greatly. A man that knew God mightily. He saw him in the burning bush. He spoke with him in the wilderness. He went to Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments from God. God spoke to Moses and knew Moses. And now we come to Exodus chapter 32, where Moses is in the wilderness, and he is about to come down from the mountain. And when he's preparing to come down, God tells Moses, the people that I led out of Egypt have gone astray from me. They've made a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And as the story progresses, we see that Moses comes down, he's livid. He he melts down this calf. God makes a distinction between those who have served him and those who have rejected him. And then in chapter 33, 
God tells Moses, I'm done. Yes, I'll, land, I'll lead my people into the promised land as I promised them, but I'm not going with them, God tells Moses. God says, I, I'm not going to continue to lead you guys, but I'll send you there. And we see in Exodus 33, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They realized it was God who brought them out of Egypt. It is God who parted the Red Sea. It was God who protected them. And now God says, you're on your own. And the people begin to mourn. And it is in this backdrop, we see something of the character of Moses and his understanding of who God is. And here we turn to Exodus 33, verse 7. We see this little parenthesis in the story where God says, I'm not going with my people. And later on, Moses is going to have a conversation about, uh, to God about that. But in verses 7 through 11, we get this, this little aside in the story to help us see the kind of relationship that Moses had with God. And I fully believe this is here as an example for us. The details here are so specific in certain ways that we look at them and we say, man, I want to know God like that. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And get this, verse 9. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, which is the presence of God, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Verse 11, thus the Lord, get this, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would, would not depart from the tent. We see that Moses would pitch a tent outside of the camp, and there he would go and meet God, and God was there speaking to him. We see that Moses calls this tent the tent of meeting. So as to say that there was an expectation that when he got to this tent, he would meet with God. He would meet with God. There was an expectation that this would happen. And God was telling Moses, come to me and come meet with me. The same kind of invitation that is there for us through prayer. Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek, and you will, you will find, knock, and a door will be opened to you. Jesus tells us in the same way that when we come to God, we can have an expectation to meet with him. Moses lived that way. Not only was there an expectation, but notice the invitation that was here. He said that you, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. Just imagine there being a camp of people with a million people from Israel living there. And just outside the camp... Down a ways, you see a, a tent in the distance, a large tent. And that tent was there, and you knew that when Moses went there, God met him there. 
And that tent served as a perpetual reminder that God is saying, come and commune with me. Now notice how the tent is not inside the camp. And I think in part what God is helping people see is that proximity with God does not mean relationship with God. What God wants them to see is just because I am here amongst my people doesn't mean you are my child. You still must come and seek me. People might say sometimes that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. You may have heard that. And I wonder if a subtle implication of the tempting outside is God summoning his people, saying, if you want me, I'm right here. I'm right here. There is an invitation. You've received those invitations in the mail, whether it be for a birthday party or a wedding or a graduation party. And you take the invitation, you mark it on the calendar, and so that you don't forget, sometimes you will put that on the refrigerator. And when it's, whenever you go in to get food, it is a continual reminder of your invitation. And so God, in the same way, tells Moses and all the people, come and commune with me. Moses expected God because God invited him. And thirdly, we see a determination. He called it a tent of meeting. And everyone, it says in verse 7, who sought the Lord will go out to the tent of meeting. Only those who sought God would go to the tent. You notice a few verses later, there are some who stood at their tent door and they watched Moses. And I can't help but see a subtle rebuke there. But why didn't they go into the tent? Why did they watch but never themselves seek? And so here we see that God is calling his people. He says, I'm inviting you, but I'm calling you to seek me. Deuteronomy 4.29 says this. It says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And clearly that's what Moses did. He went to this tent expecting to meet God because God invited him, and he was determined there to seek God. There's an expectation, an invitation, determination. And now look at the realization of this invitation. Verse 11, thus the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 10, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. In verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. God would meet him there like he said he would. When I see this, this example from Moses and God's invitation, I can't help but just pray that we as a church would yearn for God in the same way. I want to know God like Moses knew God. I I want to come before God in his presence through prayer and expect God to meet me there. I I want to know that the God of the universe, who is without bounds, who is infinite and glorious, is inviting me, and he wants me to come and seek him. And when I do, he says, I will meet you there. It will be realized. I want that for me. I want that for you. We talk about the brook having thirsty prayers. It's one of our five values. But the interesting thing about thirst is sometimes you don't realize when you're thirsty. I like running. I like running long distances. And one thing you learn if you start running long distances is that when you start feeling dehydrated, you already are. It's too late. 
And sometimes you become so preoccupied with wanting your form to be right, your surroundings, how many miles have I gone, when is this going to end, the music you're listening to, and you're not realizing you're thirsting. And at the, the end of the day, we've all been created with a thirst that only God can satisfy. But so many of us walk dehydrated because the invitation is there, but we haven't sought him. And Moses, he took up the invitation. And the people knew it. When they saw him leaving the the camp, they're like, all right, everyone get out. Moses, Moses is going. Look at the cloud. God's there. And here for us, will we be content looking or ourselves seeking? Moses sought the Lord because God is near us. The infinite and glorious God is near. Well, this is all a parenthesis in God's anger with his people from worshiping the golden calf. See, remember, God said he would not go with them into the promised land. And now we have this little picture of Moses' relationship with God. And as I was studying this passage this week for a while, I'm like, I don't get it, God. Why this this little parenthesis about Moses' prayer life? And I think there's two things God wants us to see here. The first one is he wants us to see the kind of relationship that Moses had, the kind of longing, so that when God said, I'm not going with you, Moses is like, God, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's the first thing. And the second thing that I think God wants us to see here is the kind of relationship that Moses had with God so that he can go now and talk to God and say, God, don't do it. He could intercede on behalf of the people. The very thing God wants us to take from this. Because here we come to verse 12, and the scenery changes. He's not in the tent here. He's actually on a mountain we'll find a few verses later. But what we see is the steady theme of Moses in God's presence. And Moses said to the Lord in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people to the promised land, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Say, God, you said you're not going to go with us. You're going to send some. But who are you going to send with us then? He's, and Moses goes on, but, but you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses like, God, I know that you find favor in me. You know me personally, but I'm seeing a disconnect here, God, because I want to know what's going on. He says in verse 13, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses comes to God in, this, in the midst of this horrible news that God said he's not going with them, and he's saying, God, you've got to show me your ways so I can know you better. Because, God, right now, I want you. I want your presence. It's interesting that Moses says that he will know God by knowing God's ways. I want us to hear that, family. Sometimes we think that we come to know God just by different, different things that maybe enter our minds or a certain experience. And while those things are good, Moses says, God, I will know you better as I know your ways. See, God has made himself known to us through the Bible, his word. And in his word, he has shown his attributes, his character, his actions, all that he is and all that he has done. And Moses says, when I get to know that better, I get to know you better, God. And so he longs for that. 
Oftentimes we receive a, a right warning to not let theological reflection take place absent of personal experience. That's a good warning. So that our minds are not so preoccupied with ideas and there's no connection with our heart. Equally dangerous is desiring personal experience absent from theological reflection. See, what Moses tells us. It's not one or the other, but it's a both and. And Moses is saying, I want to know your ways. That's theology, who God is. I want to know your ways so that I can know you. That's theology pierced in the heart. God, I want to know you so I can experience you. I want theological reflection to be wed with my personal experience. Seeking to know God without knowing his ways is like the human body without bones. It's a scary sight. Or wanting to know God's ways without it entering our hearts is like walking in our bones. But God has created created us so that we can know him and experience his goodness. And Moses, in this darkest of times of all things, says, God, I want to know you more so I can understand what's taking place, so I can understand you better. He longs for more of God. And this is why we say when we get to God's word, we open it up and we study it with hearts that are bowed and minds that are engaged together. So Moses wants to know God better. So he says, God, who are you going to send with us if you don't come with us? And God has Moses right where he wants him. He wants Moses to depend on him. He wants him to thirst. And Moses is saying, I'm thirsting for you, God. Please meet me in this place. He is needy for God. Family, pride will kill your need for God. When you feel like you've got it all together, you have no need for God. And here Moses, a man who communed with God, he knew one thing, and that's, what he, that's that he needed God. He knew he didn't bring the people out of Egypt by his own skill. He he knew this wasn't his own effort. It was God who did it. So this is a thirsty prayer here. Hear how God responds to him. Verse 14, God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Imagine those words in the ears of Moses. God, please. God says, my presence will go with you. But it's almost like Moses is still like, he's still on his little rant here with God. Like, he goes out of verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, he's like, Moses, he just said it will go with you. Because if it doesn't go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, I don't want to step a foot without you. If you're not going to come with us, I don't want to go. Because when you're coming with me, it demonstrates that I found favor in your sight, God. It also shows that we are your people. Moses goes so far as saying, I don't even want to go into the promised land without you. And Oh, how God wants us to have that same kind of passion. Saying, God, I don't want to live my life a step without your presence. I don't want to go on living apart from you. 
So God wants us to thirst for him as we go to school every morning when school starts. When we go to the workplace saying, God, go before me here. I know I'm a train wreck without you. So I don't even want to step foot into this company if you won't go with me. And just as he told Moses, it's truth for us. He says, I am with you. I am with you. Well, Moses continues on his passionate plea. Even when God says in verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God's like, Moses, you're mine. But Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory, God. He ups the ante. God, I want you to go with us. I want to know your ways. But God, show me your glory. I think about that request. I think, first of all, that's a bold request. The Bible tells us no one can see God truly and live because in the presence of his splendor and his holiness, imperfect people like me and you cannot stand just even a moment. I hear Moses saying, but God, I want to see your glory. What does he mean by this request? What does he mean by saying, God, I want to see your glory? Well, God tells Moses something about his glory that I want you and I to think about here. Because when we come to God and yearn for his presence, what are we yearning for? What do we long for? God says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God equates his goodness with his glory. He goes on, I'll make my goodness pass before you and, before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. If you look in your Bibles there, the word Lord is in all caps. You see that? In verse 19. And it's in all caps because that's the Hebrew name of Yahweh. It's to set it apart from the other word for Lord, which is Adonai. The name of Yahweh is God's personal name. It means the self-existent one. When God speaks his name, it is a reminder that he is the infinite God of the universe. That he is inexhaustible. And so God says, Moses, you asked to see my glory, and I will meet you in this request. But, he says, you cannot see my face, verse 20, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back my face you shall not see. Just, I, I, I marvel at this conversation that Moses is having with God. God, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'll let you see my glory, and I will let my goodness pass before me, before you. And he says, I will show mercy and who I have mercy and grace and whom I have grace, he tells him. He says, but you can't see my face. You can't see all of me, just a picture of me. I wonder, why does Moses ask for, to see God's glory. I mean, hadn't he seen it already? The burning bush, Mount Sinai and the mountain where he got the Ten Commandments? Why does he want to see God's glory? Is it one more for the bucket list? Is it just to say that he did? I, I think there's something here that, that God wants you to hear, family. We don't want to be content with what we once experienced with God, right? We want to know him even now. 
And I get a sense that Moses is saying, God, even now, I want to experience your presence. Even now, I want a taste of your glory. And I think also, there is this beautiful tension in the Christian life where there is this fact that God satisfies our deepest longings and that we live dissatisfied knowing that there's still more of God to be enjoyed. If God is infinite, doesn't it make sense that we can explore the depths of who he is for all of eternity? And so this plea to see his glory, I get a sense that Moses is saying, God, I know you, I've delighted in you, but I want more of you. I'm going to hold this tension that, yes, you satisfy me, but I'm dissatisfied. I want more of you. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, has this amazing prayer at the end of chapter 1. And it reminds me of this very quest in Exodus 33. Tozer says in this prayer, Oh God, I have tasted of thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee. That's so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long in Jesus' name. Amen. Tozer says, God longed to be thirsty even still. But he opens up, I have tasted of your goodness, and I'm both satisfied but thirsty still. I think that's what it's like when we yearn for God's presence. And when we lose the wonder, when familiarity stifles fascination, it's because we've let ourselves be content with what once was. I pray that God would help us recover the wonder and renew the pursuit of God. Notice how God meets Moses. Why would God condescend himself, accommodating our needs? Just think about that. Why would he meet us there? And yet he's done it. He let Moses see the afterglow, so to speak, of his glory. See, family, this is the God that we worship. And this is why we plead and we want to go 100 for him. Because he is a God who has invited us to come to him in prayer. And he has told us he would meet us. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart. Because God has humbled himself to accommodate our needs. What an amazing God we serve. Joshua Bell, a world-famous violinist, eight years ago went into the Lafon's train terminal in Washington. He played 43 minutes of some of the most skilled music that is known man. He played on a $3.5 million violin that he himself owns. But he did so wearing blue jeans, a t-shirt, and a hat to do a social experiment to see if people would notice and for 43 minutes, some 1,097 people passed by him. 27 stopped to listen. He made 
in those 43 minutes. Three days earlier, he packed out a music hall with tickets ranging in the $100 range. And in his social experiment, he wanted people, he wanted to see what people would do. And the conclusion was, when we're so busy, we can't appreciate even something as skilled as music that is extremely difficult from a world-famous musician on a $3.5 million instrument. Here this man, world-famous, with all the praise from all those in his community, unnoticed in the train station. Family, isn't that our God? Sitting at the right hand of Father is Jesus. Enjoying the praises of the angelic beings for all of eternity. Very God of very God accommodated himself and met us in our train station called Earth. And God walked among us. And people rejected him. They walked past him. They refused him. Not only did God accommodate to Moses in showing his glory, but he came to earth to purchase you and to purchase me. And so often in our lives, we're so busy walking past and God is crying out to us through the truth that Jesus has come and died and raised. And even in our very lives, he is at work. But our pace doesn't allow for it. The presence of God offered to you is not enjoyed. And we walk dehydrated. Very God, very God, offering himself to us. See, we serve a God who is good. And as I mentioned earlier, you may have a picture of God that is heavy-handed. God who is unmerciful. God who is just not good, who is mean, who is even evil. That's not the God that Moses served. That's not the God of the Bible. Where even in the midst of his people's rebellion, God invites them to himself. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And it says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses his acts to the people of Israel. Hear this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the name of the Lord that he proclaimed to Moses. Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, our God is a God who is good. He lets his goodness come to us, showing grace and mercy. And he invites us into his presence. And so when we worship God, family, we can experience the presence of God. But as Moses showed us, the presence of God is enjoyed when we understand who God is. When we sing songs on Sunday morning, family, we work really hard at selecting songs that strike that beautiful balance between reflection on the character of God, who he is and what he's done, and that personal experience to know him. We want to see these things wed together 
Because when we reflect upon the cross of Jesus, where God's mercy and grace was put on display, there, as we reflect, we can enjoy his presence in worship. We can enjoy the presence of God in his word, where he's made himself known to us, in prayer, where he invites us to come to him. So that's how we recover the wonder and renew the pursuit, is when we come to our God, looking at who he is, and just bowing our hearts before him in worship. I want us to go 100 as Moses did. I want us to not be content with what once was, but what God offers even in the now. Because our God is good. Jesus is worth it. And our God is glorious and worthy to be praised. Let's bow our heads together in prayer, family. Oh, Father, we come before you, Lord. And we don't want familiarity to, lead, to, to stifle fascination. We don't want to be so, become so accustomed to talking about you and not talking with you, God. God, we, 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 we don't want to be stifled by the pace of life where we don't enjoy just stopping before you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go 100, we remember that going 100 sometimes means stopping and being still in your presence. So, Lord, we give all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Family, once a month, we enjoy something called the Lord's Supper. And what it is, it's a time for us to reflect on our God. See, God promises to be present when his church gathers. and He's here in this room with us. And he delights to make himself known to us. And in one of the ways he does that, we believe, is through the celebration of what we call communion. Where we have, we have grape juice and bread. The grape juice symbolizing the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. The bread symbolizing his broken body. And Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of me. To take of the bread and the cup, eat and drink until he comes back one day. And I want us to take a moment and just bow our heads and hearts and just, just come before the Lord, thanking him for all he's done on your behalf. Thanking him for Jesus who died for you. And today, perhaps you don't know Jesus. Perhaps you don't know him. You haven't trusted in him. Our prayer is that you would know him, that you would understand and you would see what you already know in your heart. Your heart thirsts for something more that there's a dehydration going on in your soul and that Jesus is that living water. And when he died on the cross, he took your sin, your failures, your shame, and he, he took it on himself so that he can give you his righteousness and declare that you are forgiven in God's sight when you put your faith in Jesus. When we take of the bread and the cup, we are saying, I believe that. If you believe that Jesus died for you, in just a moment, I want you to rise to your feet, come forward, take the bread, dip it in a plate, and head back to your seat and prayerfully eat of the Lord's Supper. And that's a profession you can't make. If you say, you know, I don't know if I've given my life to Jesus. 
we just ask that in this moment you would search your heart. Maybe just pray to God, maybe for the first time. Say, God, I want you. I want to know you. And reflect upon what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is our God family who loves us intimately. rise to your feet would you join me taking the Lord's Supper together by coming forward